to John, you can turn to page 887, but also the text is here in this insert as well. What I'd like to do is to first read Daniel chapter 7, which is at the bottom of the page, and then we'll come to the top to read the passage in John 1, and I'll leave the others just for reference and for your meditation, because they too use the specific term, the Son of Man, which we're going to treat, and I hope that can be helpful to you as our music team will sing during communion from the back, which will be a different thing, and they will sing some wonderful hymns from the back, and you can use these passages, hopefully, as a time of meditation during communion on this glorious term, the Son of Man. We'll begin then in Daniel chapter 7. The context is Daniel has spoken of a vision that he's seen in which four kingdoms have unfolded. One is pictured as a lion, then one is a bear, one is a leopard, then the final kingdom is one pictured as a huge, horrible beast with terrible teeth, iron teeth, and out of his head come ten horns, and out of one of those horns, a bigger horn comes and destroys three other horns. And this is the sign of a huge, uh, horrible final kingdom. But then that kingdom is destroyed by the kingdom. This is the, the fifth part of the vision that he sees this one like a son of man. And later we'll point out how this kingdom that he represents is given over to the saints. Three times after this, this kingdom is spoken of as being a kingdom which belongs to the saints of God. And we'll, we'll point that out toward the end. So just gather now here are four kingdoms unfolding, this final terrible kingdom that dominates the world. And yet it is obliterated by what we see in this passage. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now, to the top of the page, John one, right at the beginning of. The description of of Jesus ministry. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Like people in Texas would say, can anything good come out of Mississippi, you know, for instance. You still may be wondering that since I've been here, actually. But Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, 
Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe you will see greater things than these? And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Let us pray. Lord, bless this study of your word, the proclamation of your word, that it may encourage our hearts and build us up in Christ. Lord, show your glory to us, O Son of Man. We pray for your glory. Amen. Hope is an amazing thing, isn't it? Hope. We can't live without hope, can we? If all hope is gone, if today and every day for us ahead is only darkness, there's no promise at all, we can hardly take a step or even lift a finger. And this happens at times to to most of us, and for some of us it can be protracted and terrible. In the midst of tragedy and setbacks, severe failure, extreme suffering and loss, sometimes protracted, continual pressure and difficulty, only hope can give us strength. And I want to ask, does hope shine into your darkness? Wouldn't it be amazing if hope so filled your heart, so braced your life, that in the midst of your struggle and weakness, you could know his joy and you could become a source of strength to others in the midst of your struggle. That is what hope can do for a human being. Jesus lived in a day that rustled with hope. Hope for a Messiah. One who would deliver Israel from their physical, political enemies, the Romans. They have been under Roman rule for now close to a hundred years. And many thought, now surely Messiah will come. This messianic fever was running high. Hope was running high. And it's interesting that in John 4, when Jesus is talking with the Samaritan woman, she says, I know that when Messiah comes, he will tell us all things to which Jesus responded. I whom speaking to you am he. He clearly proclaims to her in this private conversation, I am Messiah. So everyone's expecting a Messiah. Everybody's talking about Messiah, using the word to be a Messiah. Jesus knows himself to be the Messiah. What name is he going to choose to reveal himself to the people of that day looking for a Messiah? You notice here in John 1, he didn't use the word Messiah. Why didn't he say, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Messiah or on the king of Israel or on the king of the Jews? He didn't use any of the popular terms for Messiah. He chose this term. He describes himself over and over in the Gospels in the third person some 80 times as son of man. 
It's his favorite term to describe himself. And he's the only one who uses it. Even the early church didn't use it. Paul didn't call him the son of man. It is Jesus own description of himself. And so if we're going to understand who Jesus thought himself to be, we need to know something about this term. Son of man that he valued so highly. Why did he pick this? What was he saying about himself? And I want to tell you, if you want to have a brighter, stronger hope flooding your life, know this name. It is full of the most glorious hope. So first, I want to look at the hope that we find in this word, son of man, from Daniel seven. And then the hope that we find in this this name from John chapter one. So first, Daniel chapter seven. And then John chapter one, most everyone agrees that Jesus drew this term from Daniel chapter seven, from this phrase, one like a son of man. It's really the only background we have in the scriptures. And you'll notice that it says about this son of man, he came with the clouds of heaven. Now, that may not mean a lot to you, but in This kind of literature, it was a signal. This is God on the move. This is the way you describe a theophany. Only God is described this way in the scriptures, that God is moving on the clouds of heaven. So already there are divine overtones with this word. And often God would reveal himself in these visions in the form of a human being. In chapter one of Ezekiel, the book right before Daniel. Ezekiel describes this awesome mobile throne of God. You may have read that in chapter one. Then it says at the uh, top of this throne that was made up of four creatures and four wheels. It says above the expanse, there was the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire and seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And it's clearly in the context of Ezekiel, the appearance of God. So Daniel is doing the same thing here, using the word of God moving on the clouds in the form of a human being. It's not so much the description of a man. It's a description of God who's manifesting himself. And then, as we read, as you can see in your insert, he receives from the ancient of days, not just a human kingdom, but a divine kingdom. He receives glory from this ancient of days. He receives unlimited power, everlasting dominion. This is a divine kingship. All other kingships are gone. His alone remains. He indeed in this passage is the king of all other kings, the Lord of all other lords, because their kingdoms are gone. There's only one left. It is his. So Daniel describes him as one like a son of man. Jesus takes that phrase and here in John one says, you shall see the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. And already you see there are heavenly overtones. Heaven is opened up upon the son of man. And that's why in John chapter three, Jesus speaks of the son of man who descended from heaven. You see, he's he did not originate on earth like every other human being. We were born here. We started here. Okay, He came from heaven. 
He's the heavenly being of Daniel seven. And he spoke so often about being sent of coming from his father and returning to his father. You see, his heavenly origin is bound up in this word, son of man. We might read son of man and just think, oh, well, that's there's son of God. He's God and son of man. He's man. But that's not the origin of this word. This word has divine overtones in the first place. It's not so much a description of his humanity. It's a description of his transcendent being, his transcendent power and majesty. But here is why he most likely, well, every scholar just about would say here it is. Why he chose that term and not the more popular terms for Messiah. Because he was going to reveal something else about this Messiah that nobody could have conceived. Later in John, that same chapter, he says, this son of man must be lifted up on the cross. And in chapter 12, he says he must die like a grain of seed falling into the soil that dies and bears fruit. That's why he couldn't be just the Messiah or the king of the Jews as they expected, because they had certain ideas attached to them. Jesus didn't fit those ideas. He was not going to use those names. It would send the wrong message about his mission and about the true hope that he was going to bring. And so how can this son of man be the transcendent king of a glorious, everlasting kingdom? Yet he's also one who must die a horrible death. That's not the Messiah everybody expected. They had no categories for this. But this is the Son of Man that Jesus is revealing Himself to be. Who is this Son of Man who on the one hand in John chapter 5 has life in Himself so that He will raise the dead on the last day and yet He must lose His life? No Jewish conception of the Messiah ever came close to this. They thought that the Messiah would be a mighty conqueror who would deliver the Jews from their physical enemies, the hated Romans. But a Messiah who doesn't remove the Roman yoke, but who dies at the hands of the Romans on a Roman cross in open shame and degradation? No way! That's not the Messiah. That's not what we were waiting for. A Messiah who doesn't bring destruction on the Gentiles, but rather in mercy dies for the sins of the Gentiles. What are you talking about? He's not their Messiah, their King of the Jews that they had in their brain. He is the Son of Man who has a glorious kingdom. And it's a kingdom unlike any other. It's a kingdom that will supersede all kingdoms and finally wipe them out. But who could believe the pathway of that kingdom? His own death. His own death for the sake of the world. That defied categories that shattered all expectations. He was not going to use a politically loaded key, uh, term like king of Israel. He was the one and only Son of Man. They hoped for salvation from political tyranny. He was bringing salvation from spiritual tyranny in the first place. They 
felt that they were slaves of Rome. He knew they were slaves of guilt, slaves of the dominion of of sin, slaves of the devil. He even proclaimed to the religious leaders, you are of your father, the devil. He brought the hope of a spiritual freedom and joy. And this is where John 1 is so important. As we move from Daniel 7 now, this glorious idea of the Son of Man who is bringing a glorious kingdom and yet he's dying for the world. John 1 has this magnificent picture of angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And, and he even says to Nathaniel, you will see this. And of course, you may look through the Gospels and say, you know, I don't remember a time where I actually saw or they saw angels and descending and descending upon the Lord. But he's taking this picture from Genesis chapter 28 when Jacob, one of the patriarchs, one of the early beginnings of the nation of Israel, Jacob was sent away by his father to go and get a wife from his extended relatives. And on the way, he had a dream. And here was traditionally a ladder, but now they're thinking more that it may be a stairway. And he saw this stairway and angels descending and ascending to and from him. And I think the best translation is not, as as your ESV and New American Standard, NIV, will point out that... Not so much, or it could be that the Lord was on it, that is, at the top, or it could mean that he was beside him. And I think that's the best translation. So that here is Jacob, the Lord is beside him, the Lord is in his presence, and he's proclaiming to Jacob the promises of the covenant, of how you will have an offspring that will spread through all the earth. You will be a blessing, Jacob, to all the nations of the earth. Now, get the picture. Here's here's Jacob. God is in he's in God's presence. Angels are coming and flowing back from heaven as though heaven has been opened up and the presence of God is with Jacob and the blessings of heaven are being poured out upon Jacob. All the promises of God are coming to Jacob through this glorious vision. And Jacob awoke and he said, how awesome is this place? Surely the Lord is in this place. I didn't know it. This is none other than the house of God, the gate of heaven. So he called it Bethel. We know that that word, that city. Bethel, house of God. So heaven had come to earth. God was in that place. And now Jesus says, you will see heaven opened and the angels ascending and descending On the Son of Man. On the Son of Man Himself. So, Nathan, you you were amazed that I saw you under the fig tree. You're going to see something a lot bigger than that, Jacob. There's no longer a vision of God, uh, Yahweh, or the stairway, or Jacob. All of that's gone. There's only now Jesus here. Jesus represents this whole event You see what Jesus is saying? He has now become the contact between heaven and earth. He bridges the gap between heaven and earth. He's the means by which the realities of heaven are brought down to earth. And he's declaring that to Nathaniel. That don't you see, Nathaniel, in me all of heaven is opened up now to mankind. Heaven opens up through Him. Jesus brings heaven with Him. He's the gateway through which comes all the traffic 
that brings heaven's blessings to mankind. You see, he's the freeway. He's the inner. Here are the blessings of man, of God pouring out through Jesus Christ. And it's not referring to one particular event. Somebody, some people might want to say, well, it's the transfiguration. It's the, no, it's the whole unfolding of, of this gospel culminating in the death and resurrection of Christ that bring all the blessings of heaven to mankind. And so Nathaniel will see it himself. Nathaniel will see the glory of Christ unfolded in the miracles and the teaching culminating in the death and resurrection. And this will provide for him and all of us the most powerful fulfillment of the promise of this verse that all of heaven's heaven's blessings come to us. And so as in the next chapter, he's the temple of God. Here he becomes Bethel, you see. He is the house of God. Being in His presence is Bethel. Being with Christ, you are in the presence of God. You are in the house of God. And it's far better than Jacob's Bethel because here we have it in the flesh. In a man who's bringing God's glory to us as John began his whole book. And the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. So it is God with us. And so in that sense, you see, Son of Man has a particular beautiful side of it. That though it has this glorious foundational meaning that He is the one of glory, who has kingdoms, He is divine. He is a Son of Man. What a... You think that was the word to use, wasn't it? It had the glory and the beauty of even the fact that he was God and man. He had a glorious kingdom. And yet as man, he was going to lay down his life for his people. He had to take on humanity to bear their punishment. So he is the house of God, the reality of God, the very presence and blessing and favor and love of God brought in the flesh. And so... Not only do we become witnesses of His glory and the disciples seeing the glory of God, but I love this phrase from one of the commentators. They will now stand with Him, being joined to Him, under the opened heaven. And I I just can't get that picture out of my mind this week. Of my standing with Christ, who is receiving the blessings of heaven, not for Himself, but for me. For you, so that you might stand with Him and trust in Him and have Him as your Savior. And you stand with Him under the open heaven. That's where you stand, brothers and sisters. Under the open heaven. There's no other place for a believer to be. You're under the open heaven. And remember what I said at the beginning when... The Son of Man, one like a Son of Man, comes and receives the kingdom. The whole rest of the chapter when it talks about the conflict of that last ugly kingdom being destroyed, it says, and the kingdom is the kingdom of the saints. The one like a Son of Man receives it, but without even talking about that He gave it to them, it's automatically theirs. If it's His, it's theirs. Three times in Daniel 7 talks about the kingdom of the saints. And so the heavens being open, we are there. We have the heavenly blessings. He brings them to us. 
He died and suffered so that we could live under the open heavens. And just to mention a few things to, for your encouragement. The you here is plural. He's speaking to Nathaniel, but perhaps some other disciples were there. But as many point out, there's that implication, too, that it's to everyone who would follow him. It's to you. You will see. You will enjoy this. Do you see yourself as being under the open heaven? Do you see yourself with him? Do you have that hope in all circumstances that no matter what is happening to you, the glory cloud rests on your life? The heavens are open to pour out the blessings, blessings of fellowship with this God, blessings of becoming like him in his love, of becoming one who is enabled to love others in all circumstances. That's the true joy of this life. That's truly to be under the open heavens is to have a continual capacity. The joy of giving yourself away to other people. And to know that you're loved. See, the open heavens mean you're forever accepted if you trust in Christ. There's nothing but favor. It's not a closed heaven. It's an open heaven. And it says it has been open. Heaven has been open. It's a perfect tense. It means it's open, it's permanently open. It's never closed. It's the feeling of Psalm 23. Goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Every day you wake up, it would be a good meditation to just picture yourself. I go today under the open heavens, under the blessing and favor of God because I belong to Christ. There's nothing but favor for me, not because I deserve it. But because Christ, as the mighty Son of Man, has won the kingdom, He's giving it to His people, and I'm tasting it even now as I live under Christ. It's all-powerful. It cannot be stopped up. Nobody can close it. What does Paul say in Romans 8? Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. That means nothing can separate us from being under the open heavens and in His favor. Nothing. Nothing can block. Nothing can stop it up. The ascending and descending angels, you see, symbolize the whole power and love of God that is now yours, available for you. It represents the heavenly powers at His disposal to bless you. And so the Son of Man is still the meeting point of heaven's fullness and your need. He's the meeting point of heaven's fullness and resources and the need that you have every day. And so, see your capacity to change because the heavens are open. The tr- our church's capacity to change. Particular areas of your life. The finished work of Christ. You cannot embrace Him without embracing all the blessings of heaven which are yours. And will you not see God's eagerness in it? The eagerness of God. I love Luke 2 because this idea of the angels descending and ascending. Here's the birth of the Lord Jesus, the Son of Man. And the angels can't stand it. They burst on the scene. 
Announcing with joy, the kingdom is here. There's a Savior for you. It's like heaven bursts open, bursts wide open in its enthusiasm, its preparation, its announcement. The angel's coming is a preview of what Jesus says, that the angels symbolize the whole blessing of heaven. He's born in joyful announcements, burst forth. Heavenly glory and blessing has come to earth. See God's eagerness to show His favor in every area of your life. And the hope is not a political hope. You may die. Stephen, the only time the phrase Son of Man is used is when Stephen is dying, being stoned. This is the only time anyone calls him the Son of Man. And it says, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. The hope of the Son of Man. The hope and the glory that He had even as He was dying. Let us pray. Lord, we thank You that Stephen, even in his death, stood under the opened heaven. He even had a glimpse of it. And if Stephen, then us, we stand under the open heaven, even in the worst difficulty of our lives. There you are, O Son of Man. Showing that in your concern, your eager love, your compassion, you stand for your people. To bless them. Oh Lord, thank you that this is our heritage. Thank you that this is our blessing. This is our glory. We belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, who has given us the kingdom, who has died for his people, and secures for them all the blessings in the heavenly places, as Paul says. We praise You. We rest in You, Lord Jesus. Amen.